Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Born and raised in California, David spent much of his childhood roaming the hills, exploring creeks, meadows, and beaches, and backpacking in the mountains. Fascinated by insects and plants, he became intimately familiar with what he later called the land of the small. By the age of 14, he had his first 35mm camera for recording what he found there. A decade of international travel as a scientific field worker, educational tourism leader, and photography instructor greatly expanded his knowledge of natural history opportunities to photograph. Photo assignments and seminar teaching led David to some of the most beautiful wilderness regions of the United States. His photographic work has become widely published in nature calendars and magazines, including Audubon, National and International Wildlife, Natural History, Ranger Rick, and Life, culminating in the publication of five books. David is also the founder of the Pepperfield Project, a nonprofit organization located in Decorah, Iowa, that promotes the health and development of body, mind, and spirit through food and gardening in harmony with nature. Pepperfield Farm serves as a living example of wellness, including an environmentally sensitive lifestyle and its symbiotic relationship with the surrounding community and natural ecosystems. The farm serves as an education retreat center focused on wellness and the teaching of intelligent choices that support sustainable systems. So I just want to say welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for joining me today to tell folks more about yourself and your story. Thank you, Cody, very much. Pleasure, uh, pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I'd love to just get started. If you could just tell tell us more about yourself. You know, I read your your bio and your story of your work, but who who are you at your core? Well, I I guess I will first begin by history from childhood. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction my love of the natural world, and I I want to start there because. I feel very strongly that um, one of the great sicknesses of humanity at this point, at least in terms of the modern industrial uh, world we have created, is this disconnect that we have created between us and nature. And so as we get into this discussion about sustainable lifestyle and gardening and food and, and all of that, I want to I keep us focused on the fact that the underlying teacher in all of this, of course, is nature herself. It's, it's Gaia. It's the natural world. It's the it's the it's the living planet that uh, offers us uh, living examples around us all the time of how ecosystems function in balance, even as they change constantly uh, as the Earth evolves, and so. Uh, I am very fortunate that my background began as a little kid being a naturalist in the, in the hills around where I lived in California, collecting insects and studying plants and poking around in pond life and looking at protozoans through a microscope and uh, you know all of these different aspects of learning about the natural world were what really got me started. And then the other thing I wanted to mention just by way of background is that I did start gardening when I was about six years old. My grandparents had gardens. Uh, we had a little tiny vegetable garden in, in a small backyard yard when I was growing up. And I eventually had my own vegetable garden uh, from a young age. And so I gardened with my family and uh, we, we ate our own delicious food and uh, canned fruit together every year and so forth. So all of that the background started at a very young age. Maybe the next 
lesson it began to occur to me as I was growing up. And that is that it, it really was the direct experience. And again, I learned this through my natural history exploration, but it was the direct experience with plants, for instance, in gardening that began to teach me what I needed to know. Um, a really, a really fun little story about that, that that comes full circle much later in my life is that uh, I always loved to grow squash, for instance. We always had zucchini plants and winter squash and so forth. And um, I figured out by just looking at the anatomy of the plants when I was a little kid that they had male flowers and female flowers and I watched how the bees were pollinating them. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if you, if I pollinated these flowers and I made uh, cross pollinations. In other words, I crossed this one with that one. And, you know, I think I was about eight years old when I taught myself how to hand pollinate squash and make my own hybrids and save my own seeds. And, you know, I learned all of that direct experience, just watching nature. And then many, many years later, when I moved to Iowa and got involved with the Seed Savers Exchange, and ended up, you know, saving seed on something like 15,000 vegetable varieties uh, and had to hand pollinate all the squash to keep them pure. Uh, all of that knowledge that I gained when I was eight years old came home to roost again. So that kind of relationship is something I really want to stress. This idea that if you want to learn how to garden, you just get out there and garden. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn how to cook, cook. <laughs> you know? If you want to learn how to write, write. It's, it's just a question of diving in and learning by direct experience. And then, you know, yeah, you can read books and you can talk to other people and all of that uh, added in influence is helpful, mm -hmm. but nothing compares to what you learn at a cellular level through direct experience. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you feel like that awareness of learning through direct experience was something that was always a part of you from a young age that you just never lost a hold of? Or was it something that maybe your, your parents, your family, someone in your life that helped guide that awareness and brought it out in you? That's a, a very, very good question. And I think the answer to it is clearly both. Um, I mean, I was, from a very early age, a really independent person who, who seemed to always know what I loved and just pursued that endlessly, you know. So my life, as a result, has been a life of many passions pursued you know, with, great, uh, with great energy. Um, but also, I was fortunate to have parents who were both artists, they were both creative, they were both, I would say, renegades for their generation. Uh, you know, I remember I'm growing up in the 1950s, which was a very conservative time. And But nevertheless, my family was very liberal and very open, very open to experimentation, to change. Uh, so I had a lot of uh, both support for my interests, but also um, guidance by virtue of, of example in my parents so yes it's a combination of both yeah i know talking more about your background with the artistic parents and having other artists around i know you also mentioned people like ansel adams and that kind of being an influence on on photography in your life as well is that is that correct well sort of correct <laughs> in the sense that yes i mean obviously ansel ansel adams or anybody ever heard of the time my father did commercial design he he asked my father to help design some of his very first uh, publications um, of pictures from Yosemite way back when he was just beginning. Uh, he was a friend of the family all along. Uh, I never thought of him as a photographer. He was actually a pianist. Ansel Adams wanted to be a piano player. Mm. And uh, we happened to have a piano. So whenever he stopped by our house, he just came by to bang on the piano. You know, so I, <laughs> I always thought of Ansel more as this renegade pianist. <laughs> and, uh, I never saw any of the matter of fact. He had one of his photos over the mantle in his house, and that's the only picture of Ansel Adams I ever mentioned to growing up. <laughs> so it's kind of odd that here's this famous somebody who became 
became famous, but you know, we didn't relate to him that way at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But on the on the other hand, Coke, it was true though that we had a lot of very interesting eclectic people uh, from the art world uh, in the Bay Area of the 1950s and 60s, um, who who were uh, instrumental in surrounding me with the concept of living art as life and, and life as art, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to give me the courage to march to my own drummer, if you will. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear more about this, this phrase you were using of life is art and art is life. And, you know, looking at your bio and hearing about your background, I know you worked in the scientific field for a while. Um, and that kind of, you know, brought out the, the photography side as well. And what, at what point was it that you, you know, started to move in a, in a way back towards that, that more artistic life, you know, was, was there a distinct turning point or was it always there ever since a young age? There was a turning point. Um, because even though I grew up in a family of artists, I was basically, quote unquote, a scientist as a kid. I mean, at least that's as I got into uh, my entomology and my botany more deeply. By the time I was in high school and was thinking about college, I was pretty bitten into um, the sciences. And when I went to the University of California at Davis in the entomology department, I was pretty determined that I was going to become a professional scientist, a professional mm-hmm. biologist. Um, the, the problem was that for reasons I don't quite understand, because I was not raised in any religion, but I had a deep-seated um, distaste for dogma, for religious dogma in particular. Mm-hmm. And so my my scientific left brain mind was, you know, kind of in rebellion against uh, religious dogma um, on the one hand, until I got into professional science and I started to look at how corrupt that world could be. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh my gosh, I had bitten into the dogma of science <laughs> as deeply as, you know, what I was trying to fight against. Mm. And um, this was during a period, too, when, you know, uh, a lot of revolution was going on out in the, in the world. Um, Carlos Castaneda was writing his books about his apprenticeship. And uh, I read Carl Jung's autobiography in which he talked about uh, his metaphysical experiences. And, uh, uh, and then I got married to a, a woman through biology. My wife, Maggie, and I met mm-hmm. in that uh, field, but we both ended up digging into the metaphysical world all of a sudden. And so there was this turning point where all, all this sort of right-brained uh, aspect of hu- human experience came sweeping out from under the rug. Mm-hmm. And um, I really became much more involved in the artistry of life. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in other words, kind of went more toward the right brain functions instead of just the left brain functions. Mm-hmm. And so there was a turning point kind of in my early 20s where, there, where all of this took place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I love the comparison you're making between the dogma of religion and in in really seeing that and being a part of that within science and you know i'd love to hear some of the you know any any examples you can give of you know how science can can be just as dogmatic as some of you know the religions or any sort of thinking well a couple of things became rapidly apparent to me and that is that uh in in any in any world, uh, you know, power tends to rise to the top, you know. And so in the scientific world, what you end up having is a lot of ego where scientists get really, they invest their life in a particular uh, concept or theory. And 
and then we'll hold on to it even when new evidence uh, moves the field forward. So there's a lot of dogma that, that can hold science back. Uh, and then the other thing that I witnessed, because I was at a state university, um, uh, I was in on the beginning of, uh, of the uh, corporate world taking over science and agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was very apparent to me already you know, that the insecticide industry was wagging the dog at the University of California entomology department, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I began to see, you know, these power influences. But then I want to switch to another piece of it, Cody, that I think was also very, very significant for me. Mm-hmm. And that is that as a result of this more metaphysical turn, I discovered something in my experience, which I have come to call all the guided universe. And I want to speak to this in relationship to my current lifestyle of, of sustainability and gardening. Um, and one of the seminal uh, readings or publications at that time was the story of the Findhorn Garden. And many people might remember uh, the Findhorn Garden story in, in Scotland, um, in which they you know, discovered what they called the laws of meditation. That is to say, the power of visualized. And this process began to happen to me uh, in, in no uncertain terms. And let me just give you one profound early example of this. So at some point uh, when my wife and I had reached a stage where we thought we might be able to afford a little piece of land, and we had gotten to know uh, the Hagels, these are former Life magazine photographers, and I had done a lot of photography on their 400 acres of Sonoma County land for my second book, This Living Earth. So I knew the land intimately. And um, we approached them to see if they would sell us 10 acres of their 400 acres. And then all of a sudden, Hans, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Otto died of a heart attack. And Hansel had to sell half the land, 180 acres, and she needed $24,000 down payment, like right away to pay the inheritance taxes. Well, that was, might as well have been $24 million to us. You know, we had no money. And, um, but we had been keeping track of our dreams. And I had a dream, a flying dream over that property that I awoke from with the absolute certainty that we had to buy that, that half of her land. So instead of rejecting that dream, and you know, I knew enough to follow the lead, and I just called Hansel and I said, please don't sell if you can possibly hold out, wait a little bit, I just know we're supposed to buy this land. Mm. And within a very short period of time, I walked down to the mailbox, and in the mailbox was the first royalty check for that second book, uh, This Living Earth, and it was exactly in the amount of $24,000. So what do you make of a lesson like that? It's like, you you would have to really be asleep not to get that one, right? Mm -hmm. And and that started this process of of the universe demonstrating to me how consciousness actually works. And I've been living by synchronicities and and the guided universe ever since, and it has never let me down uh, in all of those decades. Mm. I love that story. I'm so glad you shared that one because I remember hearing it the first time um, you telling us. Uh, I, I, yeah, I just think it's it's moments like that that really help you feel tuned in and and, and harmony with with this guided universe that you're talking about. And I, I wanted to ask. I didn't want to interrupt, but I want to know like how. How were you able to trust that dream? How were you able to not forget it and follow that and say, I'm, I'm just going to believe that this is, this is going to happen? Well, that's, of course, a really um, important question because um, we all are given nudges and given uh, uh, insights. Um, we all, you know, we all have that happening to us all the time. It, we, we do live in a guided universe. We all have guidance. We all have uh, intuitions and, and insights. And yet we live in a culture that has taught us to ignore 
those signals because they're, they're mostly subtle. Uh, I mean, they usually don't come in a form quite as dramatic as the story I just <laughs> told you. Um, but I have to say that before that particular incident, you know, I had already, in retrospect, been, been living this way. If I look back to my high school years and how opportunities fell into my lap, and, and you know, I already had begun to uh, ex certainly experience, if I had not brought it to, to mature consciousness yet, mm -hmm. this idea that if you do what you love and do it to the best of your ability, um, without planning and without regard to the consequences, the universe will, will deliver the trajectory of your life in a way that you couldn't even imagine. And I already had experienced a number of, uh, uh, of such, you know, when I was 18 years old, all of a sudden I was invited to be on a National Geographic uh, entomological collecting trip for a year and a half, 36,000 miles all through India and Southeast Asia and Australia when I was only 18 years old. You know, in other words, I started having opportunities at a very young age mm -hmm. that I didn't plan for. They simply fell in my lap because, not because I was sitting back on the fence rails waiting to be served. Uh-uh, doesn't work that way. It was because I was out there becoming the best insight collector known to man at that time, you know, and so I was in demand because I was good. Mm -hmm. And I was good only because I was doing what I love. Mm -hmm. There's nothing special about it. It was yeah. special about me. It was only unusual because not very many people were doing such things, you know. Yeah. Most people don't, don't take their life that seriously. And then there's one more piece to it that I want to emphasize. Um, to go back to that dream and your question of how I was able to trust it, the first critical act is paying attention. Mm -hmm. And if you stop and think about it, getting good at anything is a matter of attentiveness. It's a matter of paying attention. Mm -hmm. uh, a good musician, for instance, who's practicing every day, only gets better if you're paying attention to whether you're getting better or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, being attentive, and another, another word that I want to bring into the discussion, which parallels that, is simply being awake. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't, we can't progress if we're asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. So living an awake life, and a life of attention, is what, is what happens here. And fortunately, I kind of just inadvertently got onto that a little bit at a time, um, and because I was passionate about stuff and because I didn't have parents that discouraged me and I didn't have school teachers who discouraged me, uh, I was supported in doing what I loved. And the more I did what I loved and the better I did it, the more opportunities came to me. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to, you know, be married to Maggie and we were ready to buy that land, this was already second nature. Yeah. Uh, and, and we had been listening to our dreams for a whole year. So I had a year's worth of attentiveness to dreams. So when I had that dream, I said, wow, you know, this, this is one of those really important dreams that I have to honor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the point you made about paying attention. And, you know, it's, it's something, you know, we, we speak to a lot. It's the consistency always beats the intensity. And, you know, that, that paying attention, like, you know, even picking apart those words, like paying, like you're investing your time, your love, your energy towards something. And I think that's a great example of, you know, with the insects and, you know, doing something that you love made it that much easier to put so much time and, and energy towards it. And the other word that comes to mind, you know, with, with this idea of paying attention is devotion. And we use this word you know, devotion or cultivation in the way that we speak about permaculture and talking about care, because care is the central ethic of permaculture, earth care, people care. And that, that devotion, that cultivation is, it's a practice that just never ends. And I think that's so important that you point that out as a part of this, uh, you know, this, this idea of the guided universe, that it's so important that you put some skin in the game, right? And that you are showing up with your heart and doing what you love. 
And I, I, I love that you speak to that point as well as, as a, a balance of both of these things. It's not just sitting back and expecting things to fall into your lap. You know, it's also showing up and doing the work, which you clearly did on this, on this journey. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask, what do you feel like changed for you after that, that stronger wake up moment where you got that check in your mailbox? I really appreciate that you have brought the word devotion into this discussion, Cody, because, uh, and in, in, in answer to your immediate question, um, I think one of the things that really began to dawn on me um, as the guided universe, you know, delivered these amazing gifts was that it, it began, that process began to verify for me the fact that, yes, indeed, I was devoted. Um, I wouldn't have used the word back then, but the fact that you just brought it into the discussion triggers in me the realization that whereas I was so opposed to organized religion and religious dogma um, for some reason, even though I was never much exposed to it, but I just was so... uh, antagonized by that kind of mindset, that rigidity of mindset, that was not devotion to me. Um, What I was experiencing as devotion was a pure love for the, for the earth, for the world uh, that I was immersed in and for the gardens that I was beginning to create and so forth. And for the photos that I was beginning to take. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I was devoted to, um, a love for the planet and also a love for beauty. So the other piece that has followed me through life is the devotion for beauty. So um, it's beauty that I see in the natural world. It's beauty that I see in the way the garden grows. It's beauty that I try to create in my writing and photography to share Mm -hmm. with other people uh, and and awaken a love for the beauty of of the earth. And that is a religious experience <laughs> that yeah. is devotion that, that that is the source of uh, spirituality um and i would not have been able to find that in the sciences that i started out in not to say that there aren't plenty i mean that there aren't you know really amazing scientists who uh are completely spiritually devoted Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the greats like Einstein were superbly, uh, you know, spiritual people. Damn. So I, I, I'm not denigrating science when I say this, uh, but I, I, I want to stress that it is really the devotion um, and the love, living a life of love um, for the things that matter, and especially for the principles that support us. And you, being involved in permaculture, understand this. That uh, you're trying to create, you know, uh, a, a model, a sustainable model of human beings interacting with the natural world according to the principles of nature uh, that underlie how all ecosystems work, mm-hmm. and that's a devotional process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, and this is why I was so excited to have this conversation with you too, because I feel like, you know, what we're talking about here is, you know, this 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 concept, this way of life of living a devotional life and, and in love with, with nature and what we're speaking about here, how, how do you transform that, that love into paying the bills into creating a artistic creative livelihood to, to live this, this way of life in, in harmony with nature when so much of the financial economy is very much against nature. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, the reason I'm laughing, Cody, is because I haven't a clue. I, I mean, you're, you're asking the wrong guy. Uh, you've got to ask the guy the universe that question. <laughs> I simply have no idea. I, I have never had to look for a job. Um, not that I haven't had some. Uh, I mean, I have been gainfully employed here and there off and on, but all of those gigs came to me in a freelance, uh, you know, guided universe way as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the point of my life that 
I can't explain it. I can't, I can't give anybody a recipe or a roadmap for how this works. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know how the guided universe is structured. I mean, I've read a lot about consciousness. I've read a lot about reincarnation. I've read a lot about what, you know, what life is like between lifetimes. And, you know, it's not like I don't have a reading background and, and some, uh, you know, I've practiced out of body experience. I've, I've you know, I've, I've done a lot of mumbo jumbo stuff that uh, has taught me a lot about this realm, but I can't tell you a recipe how it works. I can only verify that it has. And so in my economic world, for instance, for the bulk of my income came from the development of my photography, but I didn't do anything about, about promoting that. My photography came to me. I mean, the first, the first three books that I wrote, I was asked to write when I was only in my early 20s. What author ever has that? You know, every author will tell you they've been rejected in New York 25 times before they've had a manuscript published. But I was asked to write my books before I had any publishing experience at all. How do you explain such bizarre situation? Um, so my life has just been this bizarre example of being shown that if you do what you love thoroughly and you do it to the best of your ability, and I would add that it has to be of service. You know, that's the key thing, you know, that if you want to have the guided universe support you, you have to be doing something to support the world. You have to be giving back pure love to the world. And if you live a life of service, then the universe serves you in return. Mm -hmm. And um, so the economics never, you know, uh, there was always, there was always something. Uh, we we called it the magic mailbox and eventually it became the magic telephone. You know, the, the <laughs> telephone would, would ring and it would be Reader's Digest books saying that they wanted to hire me to stay home and on the farm and, you know, and take pictures of all the stuff I'd already decided to stay home and do, you know, mm -hmm. it was just uncanny how opportunities would come that were perfectly timed. Uh, and the income always managed to be there. Um, I never had a budget. I never had a plan uh, for 60 years. You know, it, it has worked and it's, it's just magic. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some of those acts of service? You know, what, what has service for the guided universe looked like for you in your life? I think the answer to that in my particular version of it, and keep in mind that everyone has their particular gift to give, whatever that might be. Um, and there's no judgment about greater gifts or lesser gifts. Um, you know, the... The, the person at the checkout counter, I'm thinking of this right now in terms of the pandemic, where the, the real heroes are the checkout people at the grocery store who get paid practically nothing, you know, uh, who are on the front line right now. Uh, try to remember a checkout person you've had in your life who was just who just had a certain glow about the way they were serving you. Uh, you're with that person for two minutes uh, and how that felt as opposed to somebody who was all pissed off and grumpy and whatever, you know. So being of service is not measured in terms of, of lesser or greater achievements. It's being of service to whatever is in front of you at this moment. Um, Gerald Jampolsky, uh, who's a psychologist, wrote a lovely book many years ago called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And in that book, he said, and I have quoted him multiple times, the person who is in your presence at this moment is the person you are meant to serve. Now, by person, that could just as well be the rutabaga you're tending in your garden, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the pet dog you have that you're either serving well or not. Uh, the um, uh, how you treat the planet with regard to you know what you purchase or what you discard or uh, 
what you do with your money and, and, and where it goes and what it supports. I mean, these are all places where we influence the world through our actions. Mm-hmm. And so to live an awake life and a devoted life means that we pay as much attention as we possibly can to what we are serving through not only what we do, but how we do it. Mm-hmm. And it's people, it's, it's plants, it's animals, it's the atmosphere, it's the soil, it's, uh, it's, it's the influence our money has in the world, it's what we do with our vote, uh, it's everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that point about the serving. I, it's, you know, what comes to my mind is when we teach about uh, you know, in permaculture, we, we also focus a lot on, you know, the, another way of phrasing this is, you know, what we feed, it, it, what we feed grows. And you, you mentioned the, the big F word, fear, right? And I think it's so important that we talk about that word in this conversation because, you know, following this, this path of the guided universe and, and the trust and the love and devotion, obviously there has to have been some, some points where, you know, it, at some points in your life that fe- you have crossed the path of fear um, and obstacles. And I'd love if you could share, you know, any, anything that comes to mind of, of those moments that you've faced fear and, and obstacles and, and what's that look like for you to overcome them? Yeah, beautiful. Um, fear is... That is probably next to the word devotion, you know, fear is probably the the other most important word because whereas devotion is the grease that keeps the wheels turning, it's the wind in our sails, fear is the opposite. If there's anything that that, uh, destroys the forward motion of the guided universe, it's fear. Um, And you know, if, if, if one is stymied in life, the, the first place to dig and the first place to look is, is what levels of fear are holding us back. And I have had many, many of those places. Everyone does. Uh, the, the big tests always come. You know, I've been through uh, three different divorces in my life. I've, I've, had, I've had a lot of experiences that other people would look at and say, oh, my gosh, you know, those must have been just horrible experiences. But no, if you if you somehow can and work through fear uh, and realize that, uh, and I think this is why the guided universe idea has been so helpful to me, and because it has given me a track record uh, to look back on. I mean, I give you one little financial example that when we moved from California and sold our land in California and bought a farm here, and um, my second wife, Joni, and I, and my family, when we moved here, wanted to then build a house. And uh, uh, Joni's brother was an architect and designed this really beautiful house, which you can all see on the website of mm-hmm. my Pepperfield project. It's a beautiful place. But it's a great big house, and it was very expensive. And at some point, I realized that, oh, my gosh, you know, I had way overspent. I mean, I... I, I I can remember I woke up in such fear. I actually had to go next door to my neighbor and, and be, be literally calmed down. I thought I was having a heart attack. You know? I mean, I, I, I fell into one of those moments of, of just incredible anxiety that I had just completely screwed up my life. And then I had to stop and realize, well, now, wait a minute. You know, remember that, that uh, $24,000 check that came in the mail. Remember this and remember that and remember that the guided universe has always provided mm-hmm. and just relax you know uh, the process is is still at work uh give it time and and don't panic and sure enough you know then the next thing you know i'm selling pictures and this and that and, and, and you know there wasn't a financial crisis um as soon as i got out of fear and liberated the positive love energy again then everything starts to flow um, so it somehow it works. I, I just, I, it's, it's a magical process that, that I, uh, I can't explain. I can simply treat it with the greatest reverence that I know how to treat it with. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that point about fear and those moments of panic. I, I think now more than ever is a, a great time to be having this conversation because, you know, we we've for many years spoken from the perspective of we can't we can't make very good decisions. We can't make creative decisions out of love and from our heart when we're acting out of fear and panic and uh, anger or whatever it might be. And so it's so important, especially now with, with so much fear that is in the air at this point in time in our history that we remind ourselves of those moments, just like you did of, you know, when, when a check came through that, that magic mailbox or, you know, those moments of success accomplishment that you've had to, to really, you know, to keep you afloat in a, in an emergency situation. And I think that's, it's just such a crucial message right now at this time in our lives. Um, I, I'd love to hear more about your, your livelihood. Um, you've mentioned, you know, several of the books that you've created and photography and, you know, from visiting Pepperfield and spending time with you, Megan and I have gotten to hear more about how you designed that space and created that organization. So I'd love to hear how that journey of, you know, creating books about this, really this homestead permaculture lifestyle have evolved into what Pepperfield is. Um, I think the first thing I would say about that uh, is that um, for fortunately or not, I'm a person of many passions. And uh, I think one thing that we all discover if we are paying attention is that um, it's fine to learn how to multitask, but actually, if you want to get good at something, uh, you can't be scattered in a lot of different directions. And so somehow or another, I fell into a pattern where all of my various passions have managed to kind of spread themselves out over a lifetime where, you know, one passion uh, became of its own volition a livelihood and then the income from that passion kind of subsidized the next one and so forth. So I'm sort of a self-subsidized freelance person. Um, so by natural history, I started out, as I said, as a scientist and doing a lot of biological field work and so forth and that afforded me the opportunity to travel and to start doing photography and then the income from photography uh, started to come in enough to support our teaching and then we began to earn enough money teaching and publishing books and so forth to help subsidize the gardening and then pretty soon the gardening uh, opened up the realm of horticultural photography especially after we moved to Iowa and I got involved in the Seed Savers Exchange. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in, involved in a very lucrative uh, horticultural photography business and so forth. So I've had this sequential self-subsidized life. Um, and uh, the income, therefore, has, you know, has been put each, each time kind of been plowed back into subsidizing the next passion that I was focusing on mm -hmm. and not that they were independent of one another you know my entomology I never became an analogist but my love of insects has followed me through everything it's in my teaching and my photography and my gardening um, everywhere you know my love of, of insects has has been important mm -hmm. and so it is true of everything else it's all integrated but I'm just trying to point out that you know the old adage that if you want to become good at something, it takes about 10,000 hours of practice before you can, you know, consider yourself, you know, begin to consider yourself good at something. Mm -hmm. uh, 10,000 hours is a lot of hours. You know? And so, you know, I didn't become a widely published photographer uh, without years of practice and, and years of paying attention and years of honoring what we used to call the, the circular file, which is the way of describing a wastebasket, you know, mm -hmm. a photographer becomes good by virtue of how many pictures throws away. <laughs> you know? uh, and so, uh, and the same thing with gardening. I'm a self-taught gardener. Well, does that mean I was a successful gardener from the start? Are you kidding me? You know, if I could 
lay out all my failures uh, would take from from now till the rest of the year, you know, mm -hmm. uh, by learning by mistakes. Uh, but that's how you get good. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, th I think what's interesting about hearing your sequential order in in, in your life is it, it it seems like to me that you know you've you've created abundance at every single phase to then invest into something else and you know evolve in your passions and your gifts and I feel like that comes back to this conversation we've been having about service too and you know what we speak about in permaculture is you know creating abundance when you are in harmony with nature in natural law in the guided universe whatever words you want to use it, it nature creates abundance through expressing itself in its most simplistic form in this this magic and mystery and i feel like you have been able to tap into that in all of these different phases and i think it's just a beautiful beautiful time for megan and i to connect with you you know when we did because and for us to share this this story right now because i feel like your your journey is is such a great example to speak to that in the way that you've embodied that throughout your lifetime and it's it's definitely been a turning point for megan and i to connect with you and hear hear the magic in your voice and and the the sparkle in your eyes about speaking about this so I, I really appreciate it. And I'd just love to know, you know, what are, what are some accomplishments that you feel most proud of throughout this journey that stand out? That, the answer to that is, is, is very direct. And it isn't measured in terms of, of the books published or the photos taken or the gardens created or, or any of, of that really. Uh, those have only been, mm, what would I call, vehicles, I suppose, for sharing the beauty of the world. But the real work that I have, that I have been devoted to and, and the work that has brought the greatest reward uh, is the one-on-one -on -one work with human beings. Serving a human being's personal growth has been the area where uh, I feel the universe has given back to me the greatest insights and the greatest personal strength and, and joy. Um, and I want to talk about that just a little because structurally on the outside, you know, if you read my websites and so forth, it would appear that people come to Pepperfield or they came to Pippendale in California when we started these programs to learn about gardening, right? People, the garden was usually the, the vehicle that drew people. Young people would come to be summer interns. And this has been going on every year for you know, 50, 60 years now. Uh, people just show up every year. I've never had to look, but the right person shows up. And even if it's the wrong person, it's the right person, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, because there's always lessons. You know, it's always a lesson to be learned. And so, um, but when I look at the successes, when I look at, the, at, at what has happened when someone comes into my life, and let me just describe a little bit how that works. Mm -hmm. um, so someone comes, they say, I really want to spend the summer working in the garden. What I have learned is that almost invariably, there is another agenda that, probably they themselves have no knowledge even exists. Mm -hmm. um, most people have some area in their life that needs to be healed. So it might be a kid who's gone through fledging problems with his parents. It might be a person who's gone through a, a broken relationship. It, it might be, um, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It could be almost anything. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the garden. So yeah. then the garden becomes the, the, the vehicle for developing a relationship of trust. And so you begin in the garden and you, you help people, you know, begin to trust their own abilities to learn something in the garden and to begin to trust uh, how, the, 
how the ecology around them functions and, and then begin to learn the trust this guided universe process as it begins to occur to them or happen to them as well. And pretty soon, you know, the opportunity arise, arises to dig into the area to the real agenda. Uh, and then as people become healed in this process, um, that's when the magic begins to happen because it's always reciprocal. You know, uh, there's never an experience I have with another human being that doesn't return to me as much learning and as much joy as flows the other way. Because what begins to occur to us if we're paying attention is that most of this energy that is exchanged between people isn't even our own. It's the energy that we channeled from the guided universe. If, you, if, if you're religious and you want to call it God, call it whatever you want, but we have the ability to bring in, you know, energy to feed this process. If you are truly in a process of service to one another. And so you know, if I'm working with somebody here uh, and we're trying to be of service to the garden, well, the message begins to come back to us that if we're also of service to one another um, in a deep way, then, then the act of giving and receiving flows. And giving and receiving cannot be blocked without, without some kind of uh, damage or, or, or stoppage of the process. So there has to be created this, this giving and receiving. And Aboriginal people who lived in harmony with the natural world understood this in terms of the world itself. You know, uh, their relationship to the spirits of the, of the natural world was, was a reciprocal communication that had to be fed both ways. And one reason our society is so sick is that we are no longer feeding anything back you know, we're, we're, we're taking commodities out of the soil, but we're not feeding anything back. And so uh, that's the source of our, of our malady in, mm -hmm. in the time in which we live. Mm -hmm. So this has been the central, you know, core of what I've, what I've learned. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, there's some stories about who have come here and, and, and whose lives have been going on with the human beings who are here as gardeners. Um, the, the blooming that takes place is what happens in the maturing and, and development of the personal growth of each one of us as we go through this process. Mm -hmm. So that's what feeds me, Cody. That's, that's where I, that, that's where my heart lives. And the rejoicing the, the deepest rejoicing that I experience is in the in the flowering of what that what that produces. Mm. You know? I love bringing in a beautiful squash at the end of the year, but I tell you what, when I see somebody who's lived here go out into the world, well, I saw it with with the two of you. You know, after you came here, the next thing I know, you're you've got a place and you're starting this project. And you're now you're here doing this interview, you know, just just imagine what that does to my heart, mm. you know, to see to see you manifesting your destiny and your dream. Mm. Uh, that's what it's about. Yeah, that, that means so much to hear you say that, David. Thank you. I yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And in, that leads me to another question I have for you on, on the show. We. I, I've been talking with a, a lot of people, you know, about, I think, you know, this place that your heart resides. I think this is, you know, we, we in, in the English language, we use a lot of different words for talking about similar things, I feel like. And, you know, on this show, you know, the name is Permaculture Freedom, obviously. We talk about ways of cultivating freedom in our lifestyle to create a livelihood and, and transform our community, transform our relationships with others, with nature. And I'd, I'd love to ask you, what, what does that word freedom mean to you in, in your life? Hmm. Well, there's, of course, uh, uh, what I love about words is that um, they're always multi-layered, right? Um, mm. The word freedom, um, it has, it has a, it has a, 
a top surface and it has a deep a deep level some layers down i'm sure if we really wanted to take the time to explore it mm. um sort of up at the top you know from a practical standpoint i have to tell you that that for me personally uh the freedom that i have experienced by being my own boss by having my own livelihood by being a freelance person uh, just the structural freedom that that has afforded me to uh, to not be ruled by externals uh, very much. You know, uh, I'm not ruled by the calendar. I'm not ruined by the uh, ruled by the by the clock. Uh, I I don't have to get up at the crack of dawn and get to a job and commute that that is so um, debilitating for people in our society. I don't have to put up with any of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, my life has been incredibly economically and energetically efficient as a result compared to the way most people live. Mm -hmm. And that is a level of freedom that is absolutely uh, beyond purchasable. I mean, it's really, <laughs> so that's the top of the, of the uh, now if you scuba dive down into that word and get down down a lot deeper um and i'm just you know having not really done that before but just looking at it uh, at this moment to try to feel me um then i get down into the realm of spirit and and what kind of freedom has this living by the guided universe given my spirit uh, to roam more freely, to, to, to not be inhibited by societal uh, expectations or norms. Mm. Well, that, that manifests in all different kinds of ways. It manifests that I, I don't have to fear, you know, diving into all manner of different ways of being or different ways of thinking or different ways of feeling. Yeah. Um, it means that I don't have to be afraid of, of you know, some of the esoteric phenomena that scare other people. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be afraid of dying. I don't have to be afraid of being born again. I, you know what I'm saying? There's a freedom of spirit that comes from... Um, uh, when, when you plug into the way the cosmos actually operates, uh, there's a freedom in that that just defies words um, yeah. and it, it's it's a it's a spiritual at some level mm-hmm. that's about as close as i can come to putting words on it spontaneously mm-hmm. yeah that that's that's beautiful thank you for sharing that like that, that can i like how you separate it into two layers because you're so right that it can be you know a, a more superficial layer of what that word is but going deeper putting you on the spot you know taking it to that spiritual level is, is, is crucial, I think, to understand what that means. And that's why I love asking other, other folks what it, what it really means to them. And the other thing that came to mind when you were speaking to that, you know, with the esoteric con- concepts, you know, and, you know, uh, living in a way that you're, you're not constrained by all sorts of thoughts, ideas, dogma, taboos, whatever it might be, you know, there's that quote, I think it's usually attributed to Aristotle, but not entirely sure, but it's, you know, it takes an educated person to entertain a thought without accepting it. Right. And I think that you embody that so well. And I think that's what both Megan and I really appreciate in you and that, that, that love that you approach, you know, all of these different ways of life with. So I want to thank you for that and, and living in that way for as long as you have and being open to that in the world. Um, I also want to start to wrap up our conversation because it's been a beautiful long conversation, but I want to respect your time. And I just want to say, you know, there's, there's this permaculture principle of obtain a yield. And I want to ask you what, what would you most like folks listening right now to take away and yield from this conversation? Um, what would I like people to take away? Um, I think, I think probably 
what I would say to be succinct is a personal command to, to set for yourself. And that is to march to your own drummer. Uh, be true, be truthful to yourself. Um, that's a big order because that, that first of all means that you have to learn to be attentive enough to find out something about who you actually really are. And uh, unfortunately, we live in a culture that doesn't teach us how to do that very well. Um, but that's where it has to start, you know, is, that, is, is to begin to pay attention to who you really are, as opposed to what society expects you to be, what parents expect you to be, what mates and partners expect you to be, um, to, to, to really find out, uh, try to remember what your life has meant. Um, um, and then to begin to read to that path, if possibly, because the closer you get to it, uh, and the more you are to it, the more the process begins to open up that we've been discussing. Mm. So, um, the bringing up the life of my heart is far I hope a living life is open. Uh, I have a whole chapter on marginal uh, I very, very important first is to realize that that's what we really need to do, you know, if, if at all possible. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I feel like anyone listening to this conversation right now has received an incredible gift listening. And I just want to ask how can, how can, people support you and the work you're doing with the Pepperfield Project? Well, thank you for asking that um, because Pepperfield actually has, has no support. I mean, because so much of what we do, we, we simply give away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we haven't really, the guided universe hasn't quite figured out how to solve the and because we're not creating programs directly that are self-supporting mm-hmm. so i mean the first thing i would say that if anybody is really interested in the overarching work that's going on here uh the simplest way to do that is to is to look up our website and simply send us a donation to keep the doors open you know mm-hmm. that's a simple thing to ask um but um but I, I really feel more inclined to say that if you really want to support the work of Pepperfield, then then try to take any grain of sand that you might have learned from this conversation, or uh, any seed that might want to germinate from you for you, and take that seed and plant it in your own life and and grow it out in your own life in the world. Um, and if you want to give something back to Pepperfield about that, send us a note down the line and tell us what it grew into. Um, that doesn't do much for the economics, but I'll tell you what, it does a great deal for the spirit. And so, uh, you know, I really am all about people taking, you know, the seeds of the seeds that we save and the seeds that we plant and uh, grow them out into the world uh, because the world needs us now like it never needs us before. Um, and I would close with one last thing, uh, a request for you, Cody. In fact, it's that I think it should be apparent from this discussion that there's a whole other level of material here that I would love for us to have another interview about um, that really digs into much more the question of what's happening to humanity right now as we go from change of age you know, into the age of Aquarius. And as we go through this incredibly um, difficult transition time that we're obviously in, um, there's a lot of insights that I would love to uh, share that I feel I picked up here and there um, a lot of dots that I think need to be connected that could be very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So let's do that. If you would be, I, it would uh, be an honor set up another interview and kind of, yeah, take it to the next level, you know, because we have a very short window of time right now 
to make the transition on this planet that we have to make. And it's, it's serious work, yeah. um, but it's incredibly exciting, joyful work. And I'd love to explore that with you uh, more at another time. Yes, I, I completely agree. It would be an honor, David. I really appreciate that. I just want to say thank you so much for being here and, and sharing more about this beautiful story that you have. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll keep in touch and get something else on the calendar to have another conversation soon. Wonderful. It's been my pleasure and I really appreciate your thoughtful, your very thoughtful questions. They're full of insight and um, it's been really a lot of fun. Wonderful. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend.